From Schwartz Media, I'm Elizabeth Coolass. This is 7am. According to author Jeff Sparrow, a new fascism is emerging from the internet. One that is rooted in meme culture, but that harnesses mass shootings as a political tool. This is the story of how the Christchurch massacre came to represent a new frontier in the far right. Jeff, let's start with our understanding of the far right. What do you think is missing from analysis on the far right and closest to us from our understanding of the Christchurch massacre and the person behind it? I think what's often missing is an understanding of fascism as a genuine political phenomenon, not just as a boo word. I think one of the problems with much of the coverage of the Christchurch massacre was that the shooter was often treated merely as an extremist or as a fantasist, a deluded man who was detached from reality. And I think that there was an unwillingness to look into how he actually had a strategy and how that strategy related to broader debates within the fascist movement. Jeff Sparrow is a writer, editor and broadcaster. His latest book is Fascists Among Us, Online Hate and the Christchurch Massacre. The perpetrator of that massacre, he was ideologically committed to fascism and he saw his massacre, the massacre that he committed, as a particular strategy that would help fascists get past the strategic uh, impasse that they were at at the moment. That's why it's really important, particularly here in Australia, for us to talk about fascism because it's a real phenomenon. There are fascists in this country and we've seen the kind of damage that they can do. So, Jeff, the Christchurch killer identified as a fascist. I think a lot of people understand fascism perhaps in its more historical context, something like Hitler's Germany, Mussolini's Italy, those kinds of places and times. What does modern-day fascism look like? The Christchurch perpetrator talked about the person who most inspired him as Sir Oswald Mosley, the leader of the British Union of Fascists. And Mosley's a particularly influential figure for contemporary fascists today, partly because he took the doctrines being expounded by Mussolini and Hitler in the 20s and the 30s and brought them into England and so anglicised them in a way that makes them more relevant to fascist in the English-speaking world today. Ladies and gentlemen, this great meeting is gathered here tonight to hear the policy and faith of fascism. He took all of those sort of key elements of fascism, that extreme hostility to any form of social equality, the commitment to remaking society in a hierarchical kind of way, and most of all, a sense of redemptive violence. What's interesting about Mosley, and one of the reasons I think he's so influential amongst the contemporary far right, is unlike Hitler and Mussolini, he survived the Second World War. After the Second World War, he was a much more marginal figure. The war itself, and particularly the horrors of the Final Solution, meant that the the kind of anti-Semitism that was fairly mainstream on the right in the 20s and the 30s was no longer publicly acceptable. Mosley and his supporters came to hold another meeting. In this stronghold of anti-fascism, their appearance was a guarantee of trouble, as everyone well knew. Fascism as a doctrine was so unpopular that everywhere Mosley and his activists went, they were physically attacked. They cried, down with Mosley, 
and down he went. So it became very, very difficult for them to try and build any sorts of organisations. And in a way, that was very much the fate of fascism through the 20th century in the English-speaking world. It remained a fringe doctrine. And one of the things that I argued is that in the 21st century, the conditions changed quite dramatically, particularly after the war on terror. What do you mean by that? So I think the war on terror succeeded in normalising Islamophobia, a doctrine that in many ways replicated the key tropes of pre-war anti-Semitism and could be used the same way by the far right, but it was much more acceptable within the mainstream by the 21st century. At the same time, the new anxiety about borders opened up an anti-immigrant sentiment that became very important for a new kind of right-wing populism that we saw manifest in Australia through organisations like One Nation, organisations that weren't fascist in and of themselves, but popularised ideas that had previously been associated with fascist organisations about the differences between ethnic groups, so a kind of racial populism. And then there's the internet. Yes, that, that's, that's right. Uh, the fascists discovered the internet very, very early. And then they also discovered that the online cultures that were developing in places like 4chan and other sites where troll culture emerged had a real synergy with their own ideas. That kind of dynamic of an obsession with transgression and shock and also cruelty was an environment that was simpatico with genuine fascist activists who quickly became very active in those kind of sites. I mentioned before that in the 20th century, it was very difficult for fascist organisations to gather and to recruit. The internet allowed them to do that in ways that weren't previously possible. And the success of the alt-right in 2016 and the victory of Donald Trump emboldened many of the American fascists to think that the time was right to come out from behind the keyboards into the real world. And they did that most notably in the Unite the Right rally at Charlottesville in 2017. And as it happened, I think it's clearer now in retrospect than it was at the time, that was an absolute disaster for them. Unite the Right, the group that organized that violent tiki torch march in Charlottesville one year ago, failed to gather significant numbers of marchers this year. They were met by counter-protests, they were met by state repression, and within about a year of that mobilisation, almost all of the leaders and organisations that had been involved in Unite the Right were in absolute disarray. Fewer than two dozen of them turned up on the day. As they boarded the subway to ride into town, their police escorts forced them to leave their flagpoles behind. When they emerged in D.C., a big crowd was there to greet them, and not in a friendly way. And that sent the ideologues of American fascism into this intense strategic debate as to what they should do. One element of the fascist right argued that they should continue to, to try to keep mobilising in the real world. Another element said, no, no, we need to go back into online activism, go back to memeing and so on. I think what the Christchurch perpetrator represented was a third way, and that third way was individual terrorism. And an individual terrorism that was about mobilising the popularity that the fascist right had online, but turning it into a particular form of real world activism that was much, much harder to stop. And that was the gun massacre. We'll be right back. 
As a a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points with links to full articles from a range of sources. Get the news you need to your inbox every weekday morning with Post. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. For Sloane Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship, and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest, Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Jeff, we're talking about contemporary fascism and the internet. Can you tell me a little bit more about that online culture? The stereotype that the 4chaners themselves used was of the, the young man sitting in his parents' basement. I mean, it was invariably a man. It was invariably connected with a, a sensibility of failed masculinity. He, he couldn't get a date, which is why you know he spent all his time in front of a computer. But there was also a sense of being economically um downwardly mobile as well. That was why you were in your parents' basement, because you couldn't get a house of your own. I mean, you wouldn't want to labour this point too much, but it was kind of analogous to the demographic that was recruited to the classical fascism of the 30s. It tended to be this kind of, this white-collar, middle-class and very masculine layer who were disappointed at how their lives had worked out and, as such, were full of rage and were looking at a target to vent that rage the racist, sexist memes that the far right were associating found a kind of willing audience of these people who thought the world hadn't turned out the way it was supposed to turn out for them and they felt that somebody had to pay for this. Jeff, you were talking about what separated the Christchurch gunmen from these internet fascists and the thing you identified was real-life violence, in particular individual gun massacres. Can you tell me a bit more about that phenomenon? The gun massacre in the form that we know it today was almost unknown before about the 1960s. Paul Mullen, who's the Australian forensic psychiatrist, says that these massacres do not even begin to appear until the 20th century and only emerge as a recurring theme in the last 30 years. Now, the majority of the shooters, particularly in the 90s and the early 2000s, were apolitical. So they would often be um, kids at high schools or in workplaces. And I think what the Christchurch perpetrator did was to see that this apolitical script associated with gun massacres could be hijacked, as it were, and politicised and turned into a vehicle for overt fascist politics. And that was what he set out to do. So he took every aspect of this conventional script, but carried them out in a way that linked them directly to hard ideological fascist politics so as to create a new script, a script that he was confident would appeal to the kind of bulletin boards on which online fascists have traditionally gathered. Young men who felt isolated and marginalised would also think that by committing a massacre, they were somehow redeeming not not only themselves, but the white race as a whole. So why not go out in a blaze of glory? So you're saying that the act that the Christchurch shooter committed sits at the intersection of these two areas of online culture and the contemporary phenomenon of, of gun violence. Yes, that that's right. And the intersection of that with 
a modified version of classical fascism. So it wasn't simply that he wrote a manifesto. It wasn't simply that he took a GoPro when he went off and committed this atrocious act so that he actually filmed the killings as they took place. It was that he did those things and studded them with various 8chan means. That the gunman stormed in uh, wearing a helmet with a camera on it and it was live-streamed on social media. Much of the video unspeakably horrifying images... The manifesto clearly wasn't intended for a mainstream readership. It's a rambling, poorly written, 74-page screed filled with internet jokes, pieces of online culture and apparent misinformation. It was intended to be read by the kind of people who assembled on places like 8chan and other sites like that in a context where he didn't believe that it was possible for fascists to translate their online support into real-world activism of the kind that they tried to do at Unite the Right. Instead of that, what they could do is create this kind of cascading series of lone wolf terror attacks that would take place unexpectedly in different places all over the world and would be very, very hard to stop. And that's precisely what we've seen. We've seen about four or five direct imitations of Christchurch I mean, this is, this is obviously barbaric. It's, it, it's nihilistic, and it's so nihilistic it can seem almost nonsensical. But from its own twisted perspective, it makes a certain amount of sense. And I think the calculation is that this will lay down the foundations to make fascist organising in the future more possible. So that said... Jeff, you know, it is fascism, but it is fascism played on different terms and with different tools. How do we as a society confront it? Yeah. I mean, that that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? And there's no simple answer. So I think the problem is, of course, that the sort of strategy being implemented by the Christchurch perpetrator is designed to be much more difficult to stop than a public fascist rally. But I think one thing that we could perhaps say is there has been A lot of discussion in the media about the responsibility of journalists in covering stories like this. While, of course, journalists need to show sensitivity when talking about such awful events, the notion that publicity will encourage more of these events, I think, misunderstands what is actually happening. These documents and manifestos aren't necessarily intended for the public as a whole. They're intended for a particular audience on the online far right, and they find that audience anyway. So given that's the case, I think it's really important that we actually talk about fascism. And most importantly, I think we need to recognise that this whole tendency thrives on despair. You only engage in a suicidal, racist gun rampage in a context of bleak despair about the world and its prospects. So I think ultimately the politics of fascism will only be overcome by a politics of hope, by giving people a sense that the future can be better than the past, that it's possible people of different races and ethnicities and genders to unite together and to make a better future. And until we're able to present that as an alternative, then this sort of voice of brutal nihilistic violence will always get some sort of hearing. Join Richard Tognetti and the ACO for a bold and intrepid 2022 
Featuring a live national concert season, their acclaimed on-demand film series ACO Studiocasts and exciting programs from their new home in Sydney's Walsh Bay. Subscriptions now on sale at aco.com.au. Mahler's music embodies the very essence of humanity. Experience his epic Song of the Earth with the Australian Chamber Orchestra, Richard Tognetti and internationally acclaimed opera stars Stuart Skelton and Catherine Carby. Opens May 12. Book now at aco.com.au. Elsewhere in the news, former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull has criticised Scott Morrison for calling the New South Wales Police Commissioner Mike Fuller about the investigation into Energy Minister Angus Taylor. Turnbull warned of the appearance of political interference in police investigations. In a radio interview last year, the Police Commissioner spoke of his friendship with Morrison when they were neighbours in Sydney. Central Alliance Senator Rex Patrick said Morrison's call was, quote, even more inappropriate because of their relationship. And more than 4,500 doctors have signed an open letter urging Tasmanian Senator Jackie Lambie to save the Medivac legislation, which has provided a pathway for sick refugees and asylum seekers to be transferred to Australia for urgent medical care. The fate of the legislation hinges on Lambie's vote, as the Morrison government plans to repeal the bill next week. In Canberra on Wednesday, David Isaacs of the Royal Australian College of Physicians told reporters, quote, people are dying on Manus Island and Nauru, and it's extremely important that doctors are the ones who decide who comes to Australia for urgent medical care, not politicians. This is 7am. I'm Elizabeth Coolass. See you Friday.